Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But while at the Art Institute, there was a teacher of mine, art historian, Bill Berkson. And Berkson is a very well-known poet. And he told me one night to go to this poetry reading. And I was like, poetry? I'm not even interested in poetry. Why would I want to go to poetry? He's like, ah, it's just down at the Cal Theater. It's not far from here. If you're not doing anything, come check it out. So I didn't have anything going on. So I went to this poetry reading. And it turns out it's the release party for the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. And I go to this thing. It's at the Cowell Theater in San Francisco. And Diane DePrima is there and Ron Padgett and, and just a host of all these amazing American icons of poetry. And I am just floored. There's visual poetry. There's poetry as song. There's just all the, this whole world of possibility and language unfolds before my eyes and my ears and my whole body. And I just... I freaked. That was it. Because Paul Hoover introduces the whole night by, by sharing this, this line from, from Jack Spicer, who was a great Berkeley Renaissance poet from the 1950s. And Spicer is in the anthology, uh, long dead at this point, but Paul Hoover shares this line, which is, the poet builds a castle on the moon made of dead skin and glass. The poet builds a castle on the moon made of dead skin and glass. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's the craziest, weirdest, most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I want, I want to do that. I want to have that kind of strange, imaginative power. And I wasn't accessing that with photography. And so that was it. That night, that was my night of, you know, with the night of the lightning bolt. And I just wanted to write poems. I wanted to get into this poetry thing. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. 
And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Albert, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Delighted. Yeah. So, you know, I actually was introduced to you because you wrote in and um, I had a chance to do some digging on your work as a writer. And it's always cool to see people who've made multi-decade careers as writers. Um, I think that we have a lot to learn from people like you, especially for those of us who've only been at this for a short time. And it's funny because in the world that we live in today, 10 years is actually a short amount of time. Uh, So I want to start by uh, asking you, uh, just based on having read your memoir, um, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? (laughs) That's a great question. What social group? Ha. Huh. You know, in high school, it was interesting, uh, you know, because I, I, I came out of these two years. I was at this, this junior high school in New York State, which was I've sort of yanked from my my childhood home, uh, you know, not uh, kicking and screaming, basically grew up in Connecticut. And then we moved right at sixth grade. And uh, and so I found myself. Uh, several miles away, but not far enough away to be totally removed from my old friends. We just moved over the border into New York State and ended up at this junior high school, public high school, and and just was, you know, basically cried for two years <laughs> and uh, was miserable, missed all my old friends, blah, blah, blah. And the 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 flow was that I would just go to the, the public high school there um, but I wanted to be back in Connecticut. So I ended up applying to this private day school in Connecticut and uh, somehow I got in and the, back in the day, this school, which is now much better, was kind of like for all the reprobates and people who gotten kicked out of prep schools and so forth. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I, I, I kind of fit in pretty good. And, and it had kids coming from Connecticut, from New York, uh, kind of from a wide geographic area. And um, 
And so I, you know, there wasn't the social groups, everyone, it was a small school and we only had 60 something kids in our class. Uh And there weren't that many ice, like sort of broken up, isolated groups as such social groups. Um, everyone seemed to show up at the same parties, you know, I mean, there's sure there were the geeks and the, the, the jocks and the preps and the stoners. And I kind of hung out with just about everybody. Mm-hmm. At some po- one point or another, I mean, I, I tended to lean. If I was honest with myself, I say I would lean toward the maybe the preps and jocks. But I was also a stoner. <laughs> I also was really into the Grateful Dead, and so I, you know, that that's sort of the if I had to pin a group, yeah, that would be it. Unpinning a group. Yeah, you know, I am curious, having been. Uh, educated in a group of such, you know, in such a small student body, um, you know, like what is different about that than what a typical person experiences education wise? How did that, how did that impact your perspective on education? What do you think of education today? Um, you know, and, and how did it, it shape your life as a writer and a creator and, and your career? You know, I guess it was, I felt pretty lost at being at this giant middle school and easily like lost within the cracks. And it, it's a small school like that. You, it, it's hard to get lost. It's hard to be isolated because people are always kind of pulling you in to various activities. And I mean, that's part of the, the private school ethos is to be engaged in community and to build community, um, whether that's, you know, volunteering well, volunteering or showing up for the yearbook team, uh, which I eventually did, or, you know, participating in after school sports, you kind of had to do all that stuff. Uh Whereas it was a little more optional in in, um, public schools. So there was a sense of engagement. And also socially, we were so tight knit while we were at school, because people were coming from from all over the place. So we ended up really hanging out there for a long time <laughs> you know you get there at sort of eight in the morning and you wouldn't leave until after your activities at like six at night and um and there was always something going on there was a play going on there was something happening at the gym there was the yearbook and i wasn't really a guy to participate much but i found myself getting funneled into these these things and uh, wound up in the uh, working with the the yearbook people because I went to I took Miss Miss Toth's photography class and that was my first foray into creativity and art making was photography and um, I was probably like junior year I want to say yeah and I really enjoyed it and I like hanging out with the people who were involved with it and we there was an openness and a randomness and a and a spaciousness and a freedom that I didn't find in a lot of the, the academic work. I wasn't a great student. Um, in fact, I was a pretty poor student. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I had a, time, a hard time expressing myself, period. But when the parameters were opened up, like in the, the yearbook thing after school, anything went, you know, and we could play and explore and there was much more freedom there for, for me to, to land in a, in a kind of creative zone. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I, I love this idea of, of having sort of open parameters to express yourself. Uh, you know, I think I, for me, I found that as a writer. I'm curious how photography influenced your writing and how um, writing has inf influenced your photography. Like what impact did each have on the other? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting story in that I, I after high school, you know, I got that camera. My dad got me a camera my senior year and I went to to Europe that summer on a school trip and took lots of pictures, mostly snapshot stuff. But then when I got to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And but I learned that you could major in photography. I was like, wow, major in taking pictures. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> Sounds good. And uh, I got kind of into it. And, um, and I learned how to see, basically. I learned how to see the world in a, in a creative way. I learned how to frame things. And, and I guess I always had a wild imagination. It wasn't really cultivated until, until college. But that imagistic style really affected um, my writing. You know, I, 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 my earliest writing was always based on images, poetry where I got my start as a writer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that learning to see and learning to frame things in a certain way and, and explore the wildness of the imagination through the image, um, the sensory image was influenced my writing. It kind of gave me a place to land and explore. Um, and that's some of my favorite writing. I mean, my favorite writers are ones who can bring you into that sensory experience that they're having that triggers your own sensory experiences, which in turn become emotional experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're trying to do as artists is we're trying to translate emotional experiences and, and cultivate a field of empathy for our readers and for the world ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's where the photography basically influenced the writing and where the writing influenced the photography. Uh, it also started showing up when I, I, I went to, uh, to college and got a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in photography, and then went on to the San Francisco Art Institute and originally majored in photography there. Um, but, you know, in the photographs, kept, the words kept entering the photographs, um, and the titles became more and more important to me. And, you know, eventually the words kind of took over and there were no more photographs left. It was just words. <laughs> and then I, I left after grad school, I left photography I fell in love with poetry and, and I sort of never looked back. Hmm. So how, I mean, I know you teach writing workshops as well. I mean, this idea of learning to see, um, how do we do that? How do people develop that capacity um, in their own work, regardless of what the genre of the, or the art form is? So, you know, I want to learn how to see uh, as a podcaster, like I want to learn to see as an interviewer and see, you know, um, and create these visual images for people who are listening. Uh, but I'm sure, you know, this extends far beyond just writing photography and even the medium, you know, that we're speaking in right now. So I'm curious, how do you cultivate that capacity? Well, I think it's a combination of, of two main things. One is, is ingesting a lot of visual work, um, you know, broadening your horizons as a as an artist as a writer um, taking in a lot of visual art um, 
you know, looking at sculpture, looking at painting, um, reading about color and line and composition, and really starting to think about why things are framed in certain ways. What's up with the square? Like, why are paintings square? Um, and what's up with the white cube of the gallery? And how are things contained? And then with conceptual art, how are things uncontained? How does just being a person in the world become a creative act? Uh, so that's, that's part of it. Is And I spent a lot of time and, and also had the benefit of growing up with, with parents who consumed a lot of art. They consumed a lot of visual art, a lot of architecture. My dad was an architect, um, a lot of photography, dance, theater. And so I was around all that stuff. And I never realized the power of that and the influence on that on my writing until much later. Uh, but so exposure, I think, is is really important. The other thing is is being in the world and mindfully tuning into your sensory experiences, whether that's visually, whether that's auditorily, whether that's um, with your sense of smell and taste, but really slowing down and stopping and and being with, being present to. That's why I find meditation is such a powerful, powerful force for creativity, because it, it, it reminds us to engage fully in the immediate sensory experience that we're having. Um, and then, you know, there's like endless exercises one can do to, to learn how to see better through, you know, just walking around with a, a cut out piece of cardboard, like a, a window, and, and looking through a window and, and framing things and see how things are composed in unique ways. And, you know, writing from photographs, writing from sculptures, writing during films. Uh, and, and these practices and these exercises, they help us see better. They help us get into our other uh, sensory experiences and other creative experiences that can really influence the writing dramatically. Well, I want to spend uh, a good amount of time talking about your personal story because, uh, you know, it was it was so deep and it was so layered with so many different experiences. I mean, the fa from the family dynamic to, uh, you know, I, I know that you've spent a good amount of time abusing substances, which is the sense I got from reading Beamish Boy um, to get to this point of sobriety. So can you walk us through, um, you know, and you can tell me a 15 minute story and that is totally cool how you kind of, you know, went down this trajectory and what is the role that writing and creativity had played in all of it? And, you know, how did it bring you to the point you're at now? Oh, boy. Well, you know, I just, I'm just finishing up. This new book is coming out. It's called Writing is a Path to Awakening. And it's, it's, it's about the writing journey and it's about the, the spiritual journey too. Uh, Somehow I survived. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in, a, in an abusive and alcoholic family. And and so by an early age, I was, you know, I was a binge drinker. And uh, there were a number of really terrible accidents, um, uh, some one of which I, I was, you know, I passed out drunk in a driveway and I was run over by uh, a best friend and he just drove over me. Um, a couple years later, I'm, I'm, I wake up handcuffed to the bed rails hospital in Colorado. No idea how I got there. And I'm under arrest. And um, through most of that time, 
I'm, I wasn't, this was my late teens, early twenties. Through most of that time, I'm not creating anything. I'm not writing anything. I'm taking a few photographs here and there. Uh, and I'm just trying to stay alive somehow. You know, I'm trying to deal with the grief of this abuse and I'm trying to, to numb it away, numb it out of my experience. And yet, uh, and I don't, at this point, I don't have any consciousness really of the effect that my, the, the creative portion of my childhood is had, like my parents and the fact that they were so interested in art and, and there were so many books around and I didn't read a lot of these books, but they were there, you know, and you sort of, they almost magically, they just kind of are imbued in you. Right. And you, and you're seeing your parents reading all the time. Like my parents were never without books. They were like always reading. And so you pick up on that as a kid and maybe it doesn't resonate. It doesn't show up in any way until you know, until you're 30 years old, which was the case with me. Um, but it's there and it's influencing your experience all along the way. Um, and so by my, my second terrible accident and arrest, I, you know, it was, that was do or die literally. Like I was, if I drank again, I was going to die. So by age 22, I got sober and and moved to California. I moved there to start anew, and and I wind and and also I applied to the San Francisco Art Institute, and I end up getting into the Art Institute in San Francisco. I submit a portfolio of photographs that have words. Um, there's some photographs I I shot while I was in Africa my junior year in East Africa. I was there for four months and took tons of pictures and and ended up sort of journal writing around uh, on these these photographs and and then submitted them to the art institute thinking I would never get in and somehow they took me <laughs> and so off I was to to San Francisco newly sober uh, still very much lost emotionally and yet there's this thread of possibility there's this thread of creativity there's this the sense that if I keep looking if I keep um, I had just recently started writing. I kept this journal when I was in Africa and um, found it profoundly helpful. I had written letters. Remember letters? Back in the day, people <laughs> used to write letters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the 80s and, and even the 90s. I suppose some people still write letters. Uh, it seems so quaint now. But um, so I wrote letters, and, and when I got to the Art Institute, I. Uh, well, it's a long story of, of arriving in San Francisco, finally realizing that I need therapy. And I, I joined this therapy group my, my new friend is in. But it turns out it's a psychedelic therapy cult. And I get sucked <laughs> into the vortex of this cult. And they're doing tons of drugs. And there's no boundaries. And, oh, God, it's a nightmare. Um, but not without it. Somehow it's redeeming qualities of of insights and revelation and letting go. And that's a, that's a whole nother thing. But at the art Institute, I flailed around. I, I, I wanted, I took pictures, I made paintings, I did performances, I shot little films. And by the end of my first year, 
my photo teachers were like, uh, where's the portfolio? Like, where's the cohesive thing that we can pin you down to? And I didn't have a thing. I was scattered all over the place. So they failed me. I failed my year end review. And instead of staying in the photography department, I said, well, I'll screw it. I'll just go to the new genres department and I can do whatever I want in the new genres department. <laughs> and so I put together a, uh, and I had to resubmit my whole portfolio. So I put together some completely bizarre, crazed, performancy installation thing. And only one of the teachers showed up and he was like, well, it looks good to me. I think you're good. And so I ended up graduating. <laughs> Uh, just barely. And, uh, but while at the Art Institute, there was a teacher of mine, art historian Bill Berkson. And Berkson is a very well-known poet. And he told me one night to go to this poetry reading. And I was like, poetry? I'm not even interested in poetry. Why would I want to go to poetry? He's like, ah, it's just down at the Cal Theater. It's not far from here. If you're not doing anything, come check it out. So I didn't have anything going on. So I went to this poetry reading. And it turns out it's the release party for the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. And I go to this thing, it's at the Cowell Theater in San Francisco, and Diane DePrima is there, and Ron Padgett, and, and just a host of all these amazing American icons of poetry. And I am just floored. There's visual poetry, there's poetry as song, there's just all the, this whole world of possibility and language unfolds before my eyes and my ears and my whole body. And I just, I freaked. That was it. Because Paul Hoover introduces the whole night by, by sharing this, this line from, from Jack Spicer, who was a great Berkeley Renaissance poet from the 1950s. And Spicer is in the anthology, uh, long dead at this point, but Paul Hoover shares this line, which is, the poet builds a castle on the moon made of dead skin and glass. The poet builds a castle on the moon made of dead skin and glass. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's the craziest, weirdest, most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I want, I want to do that. I want to have that kind of strange, imaginative power. And I wasn't accessing that with photography. And so that was it that night. That was my night of, you know, with the night of the lightning bolt. And I just wanted to write poems. I wanted to get into this poetry thing. So I bought the anthology. I started finding my favorite poems, my favorite poets, start buying books, going to the library. And for the, my remaining time there at the Art Institute, Bill was just cheering me on. He was so excited to have a, a kind of a one a student who was interested in poetry because he was such a great poet and he would who would fill my mailbox with these xerox copies of these classic books of poems that were long out of print from people like ted berrigan and alice notley and all these amazing poets and, and so i got a real education there and it it kind of took off from there and i've been talking for so long i forgot your question <laughs> no, no 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 worries this has been really awesome Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, so many questions come from this. Uh, just kind of hearing hearing the beginning of the story. One of the things that I'm curious about, and um, this is something that I think I, I, I personally have experienced with this, and I know that I tend to do this. Why do you think that people tend to numb painful emotions with things like drug, drugs or alcohol? Because um, I know I've done it. Like I, I can honestly tell you that there are plenty of moments in my life where that was my default reaction. I think it's it's... It's a combination uh, of fear. Um, I mean, it's basically fear and terror. Like in all, you know, from in my experience, it was, you know, I just I got my ass kicked when I was a kid, and and I didn't get the attention I needed and the connection and the love that's that's so basic and primary to human well being, and so I I missed that. I was so um, I was so lost to it and so yearning to come back to connection to love basically and I didn't think that I mattered at all like no one ever told me I mattered and so I I I numbed out it was too painful for me it was like physically too painful to to be alive at a certain point and I think that's that's sort of people have their own version of this, and hopefully, you know, a lot of people aren't, you know, traumatized and they didn't get their ass kicked. But we all know that that so many people do. So many people do get neglected and and do experience trauma and great loss, and especially in childhood, you know, you carry that your entire life. And so I think it's it's a way to just to disconnect. You know, I. I think showing up and being present in the world is is really challenging for all of us. Um, it takes this level of vulnerability. We have to be willing to feel the grief of the world. Um, 
I mean, just being alive today is we're, we're so um, inundated with information and and trauma on every level, just the way, you know, we're constantly hearing about the war in Syria or the war in Yemen or the war in Afghanistan or the war here, or the war that. And yes, there's always been war, but there's never been this this inundation and access, immediate access to to the trauma of it and the information around it. And so I think people are feeling so they're feeling a little bit of PTSD, even if they weren't in the war. You know, just learning about that. If you're a sensitive, open person, you're just you're just getting beaten down, and it it, it feels safer to just numb it out, to just tune out and disconnect, because otherwise you're just you're stumbling around the world, your life, you know, crying all the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, not that that's what happens when you're open necessarily. I think you know when you when you do get vulnerable, you do. Um, get real and you do get present, you open up also to a possibility of taking action, right? Your, your choices become more open and more broad. Uh, so I think to feel, to show up, to be present is to be courageous. And uh, it, it's hard. It's challenging for most of us. How uh, in your own life did you let go of, of the, the baggage from the past? God, I mean, that's all <laughs> part of the journey. That's the whole book. Yeah. Beamish boy is, is that, you know, it's part of it was, was, you know, waking up in hospitals and trying, you know, getting that signal that, you know, you do this one more time, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be alive for it. Sometimes we're stubborn. <laughs> we need to be really hit over the head or driven over by a car. Um, and then, um, all of it, a good therapist, you know, first I went to a bad therapist with no boundaries and with all these, these substances and, and psychedelics. And there was something to that, that was also opening, you know, that also helped me transcend the difficulties of my childhood and the traumas and, and so forth. And then I got a, a good therapist and, you know, I went to energy healers and I got massages and I started eating right and I started exercising and, and I started meditating and meditation was a real game changer for me because that was the place that I found that this is where I'm really showing up. Like when you settle down your nervous system and you don't do anything except breathe and reconnect and look inside it's a it's a mind blower it's a heart blower it just opens you up to this vast sense of self that's that's so much more than you ever thought you were as a human being and the true vulnerability seeps through and the true healing can be activated Wow. So those are some of the things. <laughs> yeah, funny enough, I, I found myself in uh, a session with an energy healer, which I never thought in a million years I would do. Right. I know it seems like a little bit too woo-woo and yeah. new agey and so forth. But, you know, my in my experience, and I've just noticed this in, in relationship to the, the trauma I, I experienced as a kid and what my, my sisters have gone through versus what I've gone through in terms of healing – and, and I'm not a psychologist, but I do know that 
emotions and powerful emotions, deep trauma, it lives in the body. It's a, it's a physical embodiment. It lives in the flesh and the bones of our bodies. And until we're willing to, to re-feel that and to deal with the energy in the body um, and release that, it's, it's not going anywhere. You know, because we'll just cycle around in our heads about it forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, need, we need that active, energetic reintegration and letting go to have happen. Wow. So, um, you know, the, the other part of, of what you just said that really struck me was what you called the lightning bolt moment. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, you know, how do people identify that moment in their life? Uh, you know, and I, I feel like we get multiple lightning bolt moments. I, I'm sure I've had them. I think the day that I was sent an email from my co-founder of the podcast, Sid Savar, saying you're a much better interviewer than you are a writer, who was uh, one of my <laughs> lightning bolt moments. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I'm curious, you know, how do you how do you develop an awareness to recognize those moments when they show up in your life? For me, it's always been in retrospect. Yeah. And and, you know, bringing awareness to them, thinking about I mean, this is this is the whole thing about self-reflection. That's that's really powerful and essential if we want to to evolve as human beings, you know, if we want to evolve in our lives, we want to heal our lives, expand our lives and, and make the world a better place through the, the portal that is us. Um, you, you've got to, you've got to investigate, you know, you've got to, to explore this, this sense of self, who, who am I, you know, keep asking yourself, who am I? Um, and, you know, it helps to just stay engaged and always learning. You know, sometimes these lightning bolt moments have, have been revealed to me in, um, you know, in, in like speaking workshops <laughs> you know, where you're, you're asked to, to talk about that a life-defining moment. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, what was that life-defining moment? Um, so it can kind of happen anywhere. But as a writer, you know, as a creative person, those are often the, the points that, that are most pivotal and most interesting for people to read about. And so you're exploring those as part of the, the art making process, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you think about like, okay, what are these, where are these points where I just really got sort of jolted into a new reality, a new sense of possibility for myself, or it was like a major smackdown. And I had to kind of re reassess, retool, how am I going to move forward? Uh, so that's, that's one thing about lightning bolt moments. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, you know, building a creative career that has sustained, you know, multiple decades. Uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the world that we live in today, and this is something I wrote in my book, I said, you know, our perception of longevity is actually really warped. We think that one year is a long time just because of the pace at which the world moves is so fast. And, you know, you hear people like Sam Altman over at Y Combinator say, you know, if you're serious about this, you know, you should be prepared to spend 10 years working on it. Uh-huh. And um, I, I'm very curious, you know, what advice do you have to people who are starting out early in creative careers? Like, what are the what are the pitfalls that they face? 
case, uh, you know, does are there moments when maybe it makes sense not to, to pursue this path or to, to not keep going down it? Well, I think it's it's devotion is is one of the key things. Patience, devotion, consistency, hmm. staying staying with it. Because right, in the in the creative world, it ten years is not a long time. You know, there's a lot of my favorite writers takes them ten years to write their novel. It takes ten years to write a good book. Um and that's that's difficult for a lot of us to to sit with because we want that instant gratification. Yeah. Um, but when you're starting off on the creative path, it's just you've got to get into that mode where you feel like I really love to do this thing. This is like a fun thing for me to do. There's really not anything else I'd want to do than make photographs or write a book or you know not that it's always going to be fun. 24 <laughs> seven yeah. because there's always going to be those, those aspects to anything that are, that are challenging, that are a pain in the ass, blah, blah, blah. But just being devoted to that, that world of creativity that you find yourself in, um, and, and staying with it for the long haul. I mean, what is that? The, there's that oft quoted 10,000 hour, the 10,000 hours. Yeah, I believe so. A uh, rule. Of just you're just doing it all the time, you know, for for a long time, and you put in that time, and next thing you know, you're you're pretty good at it, and it's like wow, you get those little wins that that keep you going. And I always wanted to participate. You know, I, I it it occurred to me at some point as an artist, like why are there some people who are published and out there, you know telling everybody what writing is or what photography is and others that aren't. And it finally occurred to me that, Oh, well they don't get to define what photography in America is any more than I do. The only difference is that they've, they've, they've stayed with it. They've devoted themselves to it. They keep doing it. They keep engaging. They keep participating on multiple levels too. Did you ever want to quit? Oh, uh, did I ever want to quit? Um, I, you know, I mean, in some ways I quit photography, you know, just d- depending on how you define quit. <laughs> I mean, I don't do much photography anymore, mm-hmm. uh, but I, de- I definitely didn't quit art, you know, and I, and I can't not make art. I can't not make writing. I can't not write and make poems and now it's novels and it has been memoir and who knows what'll be next, but, um, I can't not do it. You know, it's just, it's like this thing that's in me that I just love doing. I love engaging with. And, um, you know, there's often, there's these waves of doubt that, that haunt us as artists and haunt me uh, eternally. But, it, you know, there's always what I find solace in is this return to, to the work itself and to the practice and process itself and to the love of poetry, to the love of novels and to the love of even to the love of photography. 
um, you know, I still am a great admirer of photography. I don't, I don't practice it as much, but I love looking at photo books. I love going to photo shows. Um, there's a great Dorothea Lang exhibition right now up here at the Oakland museum. Um, and it's just that joy and love to connect with the art and the art making process that, that keeps me never wanting to quit. What um, what would you say to somebody who in this moment right now is, is feeling like they want to give up? I would say connect with the reasons that you got into it in the first place. You know, like for me, it was being turned on by that, that Jack Spicer quote. And so I would, in my darkest moment, I would return to that, that quote. I would return to that book of poems. And I would go there and read that again and be like, oh, yeah, that's why I got into this. That's because I love this. And I know that, that I, too, have a way of seeing the world that is important. And I just need to reconnect to that, to reconnect to that spirit of creativity and that spirit of intention to participate from my own worldview, from my own experience. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I'm really glad you brought up the idea of, you know, why did you start doing this in the first place? And I think that often in a world uh, where we're inundated with input, uh, our reasons for why we think we're doing something are often largely influenced by external, uh, you know, sources of information or people, uh, and ideas like, you know, people basically say something as a trend and suddenly you see everybody wanting to, to hop on sort of that bandwagon and it, it kind Mm -hmm. of neglects exactly what you're talking about, which, you know, to me leads to a great deal of, of creative dissatisfaction. Yeah. No. And the comparison factor too. Oh yeah. You know, especially, you know, with everybody, is on Facebook and Instagram and they're sharing all kinds of stuff. You know, their, their chicken dinner from last night that they did a fabulous <laughs> job on and their latest novel. And, you know, the fact that you start to see, you know, all your friends or your friends of friends and they're just churning out these novels and, and photo exhibitions and whatnot, it make you feel completely inferior. Um, and so I think we need to keep that in check, you know, and, and and bring our attention away from the social media stuff necessarily and more on the attention of creating, mm-hmm. spending that time. What, you know, uh, as I always love to say, a writer is somebody who writes. That's it. I had a, a student, actually, I was teaching a, a writing retreat last week up here in Northern California, and a, a woman came up to me day five and I had been spewing for these four and a half days and all kinds of content and exercises and insights and so forth. And she said to me at the very end, she said, you know, this, the, the, the biggest takeaway for me was that when you said a writer is someone who writes, I was like, yeah, that's it. You know, a writer isn't somebody who's published necessarily a writer is someone who's committed to the practice of writing that's it so commit to the practice of writing and stop worrying about what everyone else is doing and focus on being the best 
writer that you can possibly be. If, if you want to be a writer, if you really enjoy this process, if you're really devoted to sharing your ideas in this way, just do it. Just shut up and write. So uh, on that note, I have to ask uh, one other thing about this. What does your day-to-day uh, routine and ritual look like? So when I'm in in uh, the mo- new writing mode of a book, like I'm, I'm creating a, a new book. Like right now, I'm not because I'm in I'm in promotion mode for for writing as a path to awakening, and so I'm just like inundated with all of that. And that's part of being an artist, especially these days. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a multi-layered, multi-tiered process and, and promotion and connecting with your readers is, is a huge piece of it. Excuse me. Um, but dirt, when I'm generating and I have a new project going, I'm, I'm up really early at sort of five thirty, six, which is six is kind of late. And then I'm, I'm on my couch with my notebook and I'm handwriting in my notebook and I'm just, I'm doing that for 20 minutes to three hours. And then I'm jumping on the computer and I'm inputting, I'm typing things in and I'm gathering and accumulating ideas. I'm accumulating material. And this can go on for months of just accumulating material. And you know, it's different for, for each kind of a project. Um, so that would be for like memoir or, or prose or a novel where I'm just, <clears throat> I'm generating as much information and ideas as possible. And I'm starting to eventually shape them into a kind of form that I can work with. Um, but that's really the, the, the routine I'm, I'm, I'm done by, you know, 12 or, or two usually in that mode. And I just have to get away from my notebook and away from the computer and go ride my bike (laughs) or, you know, go to the coffee shop or go connect with a human being. Um, so that's, that's the general generative portion of the program. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get it. It's, it's funny. I think the the interesting thing to me is, is you know, setting aside time to actually shut down and go do whatever it is that uh, often we think is wasting time. Uh, and yet those tend to be the moments in which we get a lot of our best creative insights. Mm-hmm. And you have to find your own process. Yeah. Which is an act of discovery and experimentation. You know, when are you the most productive? Some people are productive at night. I'm not. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm down for the count by like eight or nine o'clock. <laughs> I just want to go to bed. And, uh, I mean, that's not always true too, right? We don't want to get too locked into, uh, our personality type or style because interesting stuff can happen when we write at the off hours. Um, and so kind of remaining open, you know, finding your little niche, finding your most productive zone, but also being willing to to tinker a little bit because sometimes you don't have the time. Like I was, my wife and I had this home care business for a while, uh, for about seven years. And, and I had to write in the evenings. I had to write on the weekends. I had to, I didn't have the, the, the pleasure and the time and the space to get up at five thirty and put in a couple of hours before work. Most days, you know, I had a, hour and a half commute and 
And so I had to squeeze it in whenever I could. Um, so it depends on your time. But there's always time, no matter how crazed you are. If you want to write, if you want to create, there's always time. You have to create that time the way you would create your characters in your book. You know, you, you are the creator. The ultimate artwork is yourself and your life. And so you, you invent that time and create it, whether it's 15 minutes before work or 15 minutes before you go to bed. Well, uh, I think you have filled this with a, a lot of poetic nuggets, as, as I kind of expected, having read your memoir. So I want to finish with my final question, which I know, I've, uh, you know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <laughs> I think some unmistakable. That's a funny word. Unmistakable. Like, as in you can't mistake them for somebody else? Yeah, I would say so. Um. I think it's their willingness to to be authentic. That's really it. Their willingness to be authentic. Their willingness to go inside, to be vulnerable, to to open up to all the fear, the doubt, the terror, the beauty, the love, the joy, the insight. The full willingness to to be that authentic self that's what makes them unmistakable mm. you know because then you're then you're like in tune with your inclinations your inclinations to experiment your inclinations to to explore um, to ask questions to connect with others and ultimately to change the world as only you can Well, I think that makes a uh, fitting end to our conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, just albertflynndsilver.com or just hashtag writing as a path is another way. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.